It's infuriating to me that they dare to write this name as if it's startling. The data was available all along from the very, very beginning uh, that children were at little to no risk from COVID. You still can't protect a child from the isolation, the depression and anxiety that comes from that. So children across all walks of life were harmed by this. I started advocating for open schools. I really focused my advocacy on children, not the sort of broader lockdown issue. I, I was against the broader lockdowns, but I didn't talk about it as much. I felt like if I focus on children, that should be a bridge issue that everybody can agree on. No one wants to harm children, right? They were arguing that if you kept the schools open, that was putting black children in danger, therefore you were being racist. Correct. That's completely backwards. Correct. The mainstream outlets actually vilified any dissenter. Medical professionals who implemented the, the Great Barrington Declaration. These are not fringe scientists or fringe no. epidemiologists, but that's how they were shunted and delegitimized by the mainstream. The social censorship was also really intense. I think it was a reason a lot of people didn't want to speak up, even if they saw what was happening, because you risk losing your community, your friends. That's why the censorship is so dangerous, because we cannot get to the right answers. Do not be, do not be careful. Say the thing you need to say and I will defend your right to do it even if I disagree with you. Welcome to the Bill Walton Show. I'm Bill Walton. One of the great pleasures I have producing this show is the chance to talk with extraordinary people about their achievements and their missions. Today, we have, have someone truly remarkable, uh, Jennifer Say. Jennifer Say was a seven-time member of the U.S. Women's National Team in Gymnastics, and was the 1986 U.S. Women's All-Round National Champion. She produced a documentary, Athlete A, and wrote a book, Chalked Up, exposing the abuse of children and young women gymnasts that spurred radical change in the sport. After graduating from Stanford, she rose to become next in line for CEO of Levi, Levi Strauss, and was widely, separate, widely celebrated as a versatile and inspirational leader who helped save the iconic brand from bank bankruptcy. Uh, she has described herself in the past as a Liz Warren voting progressive, but everything changed when she publicly opposed the closure of San Francisco's public schools at the height of the COVID-19 pandemic. Top management and the board told her to shut up or leave. So she left. Then, just this week, we read in all places the New York Times, I quote, the evidence is now in and it is startling. The school closures that took 50 million ch children out of classrooms at the start of the pandemic may prove to be the most damaging disruption in the history of American education. Jennifer, are we surprised? No, anyone with half a brain who was paying attention um, and not sucked in by the propaganda is not surprised. It's infuriating to me that they dare to write this now as if it's startling. The data was available all along from the very, very beginning uh, that children were at little to no risk from COVID, that they were less likely to spread it, and that closing schools for more than a couple of weeks at a time is devastating, especially for the most vulnerable, the poorest children. Did you have kids so, in school in San Francisco then? 
Yeah, I did. I, I have four children. Um, they're wide range of ages. Two are now in their 20s and two are in elementary school. So at the time I had a high schooler, a college student and a kindergartner. So I, and a preschooler. So I saw it from all <laughs> angles. It was terrible for all of them. And I should be clear, my children have every possible advantage. You know, they had a parent at home to help uh, for the very youngest, you know, to help with quote unquote Zoom school. I won't grant it as school to this day. Uh, they had strong Wi-Fi. They had enough to eat. They're, you know, not being abused. They're not taking care of younger siblings. All of the things um, that we know were true. You still can't protect a child, even a child of means from, <clears throat> excuse me, the isolation, the depression and anxiety that comes from that. So children across all walks of life were harmed by this. And like I said, it was obvious from the beginning. But now, three and a half years in, the New York Times tells us we're allowed to talk about it after the damage has been done. Because they talked about 50 million children that were shut out of school, you know, in March of 2020, a full year later. 25 million children, half of that, were still in disrupted schooling. And that lasted for another six to seven months. Well, in the New York Times, I didn't read the article all the way through. I never, I didn't see any spot in it where they took accountability or had, had some accountability for this. It was like, yeah, say it, was, it mean, was done by somebody else. <laughs> yes. And they, you know, I hold a special place of disdain for the mainstream press in my heart in terms of helping to further the hysteria uh, that gave cover to government leaders, public health leaders, teachers, unions in keeping schools closed. The press is there to interrogate the issues. The press is there to hold power to account. And they did no such thing. They printed government issued press releases and big pharma press releases as if it was journalism. If someone like me, a normie with basic math skills could figure out from March, 2020, excuse me, that this was going to be incredibly harmful to children, the most vulnerable children it would be the most harmful to. If I could figure it out, why couldn't the science desk at the New York Times? Now, you're, you're, I'll, I'm going to go into your, some of the other adventures in your life and, and achievements, but let's stick with the, your, your current project. You're producing mm -hmm. a documentary now about the impact of the lockdowns. I am. Um, I'm producing a documentary. I'm directing it with a partner. His name is Andrew James. We met in the last few years during COVID as, you know, dissenters yeah. met online. There weren't that many of us. We started filming in, um, in, I believe, March 2022. And we've been following about 10 families, kids from a range of backgrounds, range of geographies, um, who face different kinds of challenges, you know, kids from low-income backgrounds, uh, kids who suffered from the mental health impacts. We have one family who lost a child, in fact, to suicide. Um, we have a family here in Colorado where I live where the teenager dropped out. She was taking care of three younger siblings at home, and she just did not have the wherewithal. Um, or the adult supervision to continue uh, special needs children who were denied legally required services. Um, so we try to cover all the issues. We've been filming for about a year and a half. We're done filming and we're editing now. It's called Generation COVID. What's the extent of how the damage was obviously loss of learning. Damage was emotional, so social skills. Uh, I, I suppose there was related damage from having to wear masks and socially distance as a kid. 
and there's the drug and alcohol. I mean, I'm taking off a list Does, of things. Well, what what did you find as you as you pulled together all of the uh, all the horribles about this? Yeah, I mean, you named a lot of them, but I think what people failed to predict, which I saw from the beginning, societally, we sent children the message that their schooling was not a priority, that they were not a priority, and in fact. If they missed things like having friends and an everyday life and key milestones like graduations and football games, they were selfish, horrible people. Imagine what that does to a child's psyche. So now the, the depression, the anxiety, it persists, not surprisingly. And we're seeing record high levels of absenteeism. There are districts in this country where more than 50% of the students are chronically absent. I mean, that's, that's crazy. So. You know, to me, that is a direct result of indicating to children, your education isn't that important. You're not a priority for society. Because in most cities and states, even where I lived at the time, San Francisco, it was worse in deep blue cities and states. Bars were open. Strip clubs were open. um, Dance clubs. Large stadiums. So adults got their lives back. And kids were still relegated to their bedrooms on Zoom for a full year after adults were able to live their lives and have fun. Um, and so I think we just sent a strong signal that they didn't matter. They took that seriously and they are not returning to school. They're just not going. And so the other real crime here is that the high schools are just waving them through. They don't have basic reading and math skills, but they graduate and they are now entering the world without basic skills that would enable them to hold a job. That harms us all. We were speaking out about this three years ago. A lot of us guests on this show and related, and you know, it was obvious back then uh, how bad this would be, and why we had to had to had to end the regime of uh, shutting down society. Uh, they didn't listen, but you you were you 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 paid a particularly high personal price for this. You were what the brand manager, brand. Uh, in charge of the Levi Strauss brand, and you turned around the company. It was heading into bankruptcy, and you successfully helped re-engineer its resurgence, and and were in line to be CEO, which is a, a big deal. And then uh, you started tweeting about what you felt mm-hmm. about the lockdowns. What 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 was that like inside the uh, the C-suite? It was. It was very unpleasant, as you might imagine. Um, and I, and you know, I should mention I worked there 23 years, yeah. so I was very committed um, to this this brand and this company. I loved it. I'd loved the brand and worn it since I was a small child. So it was a real honor to be able to climb the ranks and you know hold the role of chief marketing officer for eight years, which is a pretty uh, long time to hold that role. I think the average tenure for a CMO, as they're called, is about 24 months. So. <laughs> Um, and, you know, in that role, I helped lead the company to a successful IPO and then became brand president. And I started advocating for open schools. I really focused my advocacy on children, not the sort of broader lockdown issue. I, I was against the broader lockdowns, but I didn't talk about it as much. I felt like if I focus on children, that should be a bridge issue that everybody can agree on. No one wants to harm children, right? Boy, was I wrong. So I thought, you know, if I focus my efforts there, I can make a difference. And I I will point out, playgrounds in San Francisco were closed 10 months. This is city, an urban area. No one has a yard. Rich or no one. They closed the basketball courts. That's great for urban kids to have no exercise. And they opened the golf courses. (laughs) So, you know, it's clear 
who didn't matter in this situation. No. They closed basketball courts. They filled skate parks with sand. Years later, the basketball courts, even if they were officially open, the rims were not put back. So there was just no care for children. And we should put children first. So I started advocating for this. It started out just me tweeting. Um, but then I was invited to write op-eds. I was on the local news. I led rallies to open schools. And, you know, inside the company, it was very difficult. I was told that, you know, this was not appropriate. I shouldn't do this. Lots of people were angry. I was called racist because the theory was inside and outside the company that if you advocated for open public schools, you didn't care if black children died. When in fact, the children that were being harmed the most were those most likely to be in public school, black, brown, low income. Let, let me understand that. They were arguing that if you kept the schools open, that was putting black children in danger. Therefore, you were being racist. Correct. That's completely backwards. Correct. You know, we had a, we had a, I, I read, I started an educational reading program in the inner city public schools in Chicago and go into these tough, tough neighborhoods. And the elementary school was really the haven. It was the place yeah. you wanted to be in those very bad neighborhoods, broken families, all that sort of thing. The elementary school was, uh, was, 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 was the beacon. Yeah. I mean, this is where in, 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 in many schools in San Francisco, 60% of children in public schools are on free or reduced lunch. Yeah. So that means they're living, um, you know, at or below the poverty line in, in many instances. School is where they are fed. It's where they have um, sure. adult supervision. I mean, I'm accusing these parents of being neglectful. That's not at all. But they were working hourly wage, essential jobs, maybe two of them. They just simply weren't home and available to help and monitor their children. Sometimes they worked the night shift, so very young children were left home alone. Um, you know, I'm not in any way maligning these parents. Public school, it, it's, it's a contract with our community. People yeah. have come to it. You can, you can argue that the public school system stinks and we shouldn't have it, but the fact is, is that millions and millions of families and households across America rely on it to educate and take care of their children. And it was taken away just overnight. And those kids are not okay. This is not a temporary thing. This is permanent for far too many children. Because if you disengage from school and now you haven't gone back and now you don't graduate, even if that's five percentage of this generation, yeah, that's a massive impact for us all. Well, and it's worse than that. But oh, it is. I'm I'm underplaying it because people say, well, it's not every child. No, of course nah, it's not well, every child. But it's most. Um, but, but it's. It's far well, too many, and it's a it's a gener it's criminal. I mean, it really is. It's a moral atrocity that we did this to the most vulnerable so, children. So the so the discussion that led up to your departure from Levi, were they telling you you're hurting the brand, or were they telling you they disagreed with your view? Was it was it on the of, substance, or was it about affecting? Uh, you know, back in the day when corporations weren't supposed to take positions on matters like that. Even if that was the case then, it probably wasn't. But I mean, was this a corporate issue or a personal issue? It was both. Okay. Or at least it was cited, cited as, as both. And it wasn't a one-time conversation. You know, it went on consistently for two years. And, you know, I very politely declined to stop. And I, I should say, you know, it, it wasn't just internally. It was externally. And as I grew a bit more of a following online, there were definitely people that came after me. So it was external as well. There was... Um, 
you know, there were folks in the gymnastics community. I know we'll talk about gymnastics, but I had some notoriety there who started a petition to have me fired. Um, I mean, it was only signed by 50 people, but um, it's hard to explain if you didn't live in a deep blue city like I did, how total it was, this belief that if you thought anything other than total lockdown forever, mask ups, three masks, never go out, um, lockdown until they tell, tell us we can leave. That was just so comprehensive. It was so total from every citizen in San Francisco that if you dared to just say, hey, wait a minute, is this right? Is everyone at equal risk? Children aren't real. You were just demonized. I mean, I was called a racist, a eugenicist, a Nazi. I was called a Nazi. It's well, how, how 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 profound a change has this caused in your personal philosophy? Because I've we talked before we got on. I've had Janine Yanez on and and uh, Naomi Wolf, and they both were. I think I mentioned at the outset. I read that you were a big Elizabeth Warren supporter, uh, and you changed because of this. They changed because of this. How how complete has your transformation been? Um. You know, what I've said from the beginning of kind of the onslaught is that I am about principle, not party. And so, in fact, right. you know, I have a, realigned myself politically. I'm an independent now. I'm not a Democrat. I'm not run into the arms of the other either. Um, I want to be able to evaluate the issues, you know, prioritize for me and my family what matters to us yeah. and vote accordingly. And it does just seem at this point, like both parties sort of demand that you line up on every issue. It, you know, it used to be you could be a pro-choice Republican or you could be a pro-life Democrat. Now you cannot veer from the, you know, furthest reaches of either yeah. party. And I do think it's worse on the left. So I definitely want no association with that party. And I just I feel like everything they ever said is a lie. They don't care about children. They don't care about the vulnerable. They don't care about small business owners. They don't care about freedom of speech. One of uh, this is Bill Walton. I'm talking Bill Walton. Show. I'm talking to Jennifer Saves. Had an extraordinary career. Uh, I think starting at 11 years old, you were considered one of the elite gymnasts in America, and you went on to win the national championship in gymnastics. And you wrote a book. Uh, I believe it's called Chalked Up, that talks about the psychological abuse that goes on in training young gymnasts. And then you went on to produce uh, uh, the film, uh, goodness, uh, Athlete A. And I, we were talking before we got on. I was going to do some prep this morning, and I thought I'd look at your documentary, take a couple of minutes just to see what it's about. And an hour and 45 minutes later, I was still... Uh, Taking it in, riveted. I mean, the the, the this, what you exposed in uh, the elite gymnastics world was uh, was an eye opener. And I, I'm going to tie this to what we're talking about. Yeah. Is anything we see in the school closing is that psychology relate to the the psychology of of uh, the people running uh, gymnastics? Um, well, I'll. That's interesting. That was a, yeah, that was a nine, so. that was a nine part I, question. <laughs> no, I, I think so. I was going to say for me, I'm pushing back on, on, on the harms being done is certainly related and that I was a young gymnast and adult needs, wants, et cetera, were put before children, the children who make the sport what it is. 
you know, the USA Gymnastics was very invested in presenting the sport as, you know, this image of little girls prancing around with pin curls and sparkly and happy and all of that, right? That drove sponsorship dollars. The reality is the training was incredibly brutal and rife with emotional, physical, and sexual abuse. And it was happening all around us. You know, the national team coach throughout the 80s, who was the Olympic team coach in the 1984 Olympics when Mary Lou won, he was a a pedophile and a rapist and we all knew it. And I traveled around the world with him. Now, he didn't touch me, but the fact that we all knew and we were all sent around the world with this man and the, you know, what was implied is don't say anything. He's very well respected. You know, he comes first. So I think, you know, adults just sacrificing children for their own gain, that is, you know, I think with these entities and I'll compare USAG and public health and local government leaders. All and, the the way teacher, and you can compare them with the teachers union. Sure. Exactly. They sacrifice children for their yeah. own whatever. Now, for me, it's related because I view, I wish somebody had spoken up for me when I was a child. You know, the strong message sent to me was, you need to just keep your mouth shut and go along. And so all these people saying, oh, my kids are fine. The kids are fine. Really? Kids are going to try to please the adults around. Not every single child, but most children, you know, they, they have that inclination, especially, you know, the young ones. And so what I want to do with the film that we're making is give voice to these children. I want them to I want people to hear from the mouths of the kids themselves. What happened? What did you experience? How did it make you feel? And where are you now? Because I don't know how you can't reassess your priors when you hear directly from the mouths of children and what they've gone through. Um, but that to me is, you know, for me, it was standing up for children who are vulnerable and have no voice. And I think for these institutions, whether USAG or the U.S. Olympic Committee or the teachers unions or Gavin Newsom, they ignored the needs of children and well, you, put their own needs first. You, you were part of a, uh, you played a role in bringing the people who are responsible for this in gymnastics to account. Do we have a line of action in education? I mean, there are a lot of people, a lot of grownups responsible for this all over the country. In fact, all over the world. Um, yeah, New Zealand and Australia were arguably yeah. worse than, than here. Um, do you, as you develop this documentary, talk with people, what do we do next? I mean, how do we do we? Well, there, do we... there is no line of action. There's all this money that was set aside. Um, I don't even remember what it was kind of called or earmarked as, but billions of dollars that was intended to be used to upgrade the schools so that kids could go to in-person school safely. And let me just say, the schools didn't need to be upgraded. Open a window and let them go to school. Open a window, open the doors, <laughs> let them go to school. That's what they did in Europe. Right. Everybody says, oh, you can't compare to Europe. The buildings, the buildings are older in Europe. If you have any sense of history, and they open the doors and they let them come in. That's all that needs to be done. So none of that money was spent. The kids did not go back to school for close to 19 months. That money is going to be lost. It needs to be used to lengthen the school day, provide tutors to those children behind, add summer school. None of this is happening. And, and the biggest problem is huge swaths of kids are not coming back. So how do you tutor them? How do you extend the school day? How do you... Um, you know, add summer school. So we need people to go into communities and bring these children back. There's an organization here in Colorado where I live called Zero Dropouts. 
They mm-hmm. literally go door to door. If a child, they work with the school system, they knock on doors, they talk to parents, and they are so incredibly persistent because at first the parents won't answer. They go back again and again and again until they have a conversation and they get that child back in school. We need some sort of program modeled after zero dropouts because there are far too many children that just aren't attending. None of this is happening though. But my hope for the film is that it can kind of get people activated. I mean, you know, Athlete A came out four years after the Larry Nasser crimes were revealed to the yeah. world. Two years after he went to prison, that film is what motivated gymnasts around the world to demand change from their governing bodies. It was the film. And so I believe in the power of art to, to do that and to motivate and motivate people. So how are you financing the film? That's speak, a great I, I question. I speak as a former, as a former film. Bill, I've, I've produced a couple of movies myself. They're expensive. They are. And any advice is welcome. Here's how I've gone about it. I mean, the, the documentary film community and those who fund it are very liberal, not classical liberal, like lefty activist liberal. Um, and so, you know, though I reached out to many of those traditional sources who I'd known from Athlete Day, they declined. They said it was too controversial and political. So I found alternate sources of private investors. And I've invested in the film myself. Um, and we need more to finish it. So, uh, you know, I'm going to network right on the, right on air. Uh, I do, love you know it. Michael, do you know Michael Pack? I do not. Michael Pack ran the unit that uh, ran the agency that operated Voice of America. And he is a very, very successful documentary filmmaker. He did documentaries on Rick Over and Clarence Thomas. And he's I'd, I'd call him, I, I'd say he's sort of right of center. He's not, and he produced a lot of his films for NPR. And my guess, he's doing an incubator. So I think, and, and also, that's he, he was on the show two or three times. And, and we talked about the difficulties of, of, of quote, conservative, although I'm not, that, I'm not yeah. quite sure that's the right word to describe um, what we're talking about, uh, to yeah. get financed and to get distributed. Yeah. And- have you That's thought correct. about distribution and, and all that? Where how are we going to how are we going to make sure millions of people see this? Well, that's the thing is my my fondest hope is that I'm not just preaching to the choir and because I don't view this as a political film. This is about kids. So I I am targeting and I've not yet reached out, but I'm about to start reaching out to the large mainstream streamers. And you know, I'll go from there. But I, I don't want to preach to the choir. You know, I really want Americans of all backgrounds and all political stripes to hear from the children themselves. Well, well that's the biggest problem. And, and Janine Eunice has written about this a lot, which is the censorship regime where you get an yeah. idea like that, like, like you have and, and a cause that you have, and it, it, it's underreported or even it's not reported at all, which is why I was surprised to see the New York Times, uh, they did do a mea culpa, but at least they, they admitted what happened. Yeah, I mean, I would go one step further. The mainstream outlets actually vilified any dissenters. You know, yeah. these are renowned doctors, people like, you know, Dr. Bhattacharya from Stanford and Martin Kulder, who was um, from Harvard at the time, uh, Sunetra Gupta from Oxford. These are the, you know, the the medical professionals who in- implemented the, the Great Barrington Declaration. These are not 
fringe scientists or fringe no. epidemiologists, but that's how they were shunted and delegitimized by the mainstream mainstream press. Well, many people lost their positions. Uh, yeah. And, you know, it's, uh, were you involved in the Barrington Declaration uh, with they, when they uh, signed that great document in what, no, November I know, 2020? No, and I, I, you know, I've since met everyone um, and have become sort of part of that little community. Uh, you know, I mentioned that Janine is a is a good good friend, and and uh, Dr. Bhattacharya is in the film. But no, I was not there at the time. I was screaming from San Francisco by my by my lonesome. I, I want to just point out that the, you know, the the censorship and the social the social censorship was also really intense. And I think was a reason a lot of people didn't want to speak up, even if they saw what was happening, because you risk losing your community, your friends. You know, they saw what happened to people like me and Janine. If we spoke up and they were like, whoa, whoa, I'm just going to stay here in the corner and be quiet. You know, I would not underestimate the power and intensity of that social censorship, especially for women who are often the, you know, you know, that you're the one making playdates for your kids and you're the one with relationships in the community. And, you know, we are tend to have more empathy. We just can't handle that, you know? And so I think for most um, women, it just was, you know, they weren't going to speak up even if they saw the harms to their kids. But the mainstream media, not including dissenting voices, is what prevented a societal conversation, a real conversation from happening. And it's why schools were closed so, for so long. That's why the censorship is so dangerous, because we cannot get to the right answers. So as a marketing maven, how do we market this better? Free speech, market free speech better. Okay. Yeah, that's where I am. Yeah, I had I had a couple of shows pulled from YouTube because uh, what, what were we, I think we were talking about, I, don't remember, I think it was masks or something. I yeah. Was, I was against masks. and. Was it was it masks that got us pulled? Yeah, that would do it. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, my trailer for the film Generation COVID, which we have a YouTube channel, we posted the the teaser for the film there. Everyone should check it out. Um, it has a COVID warning on it now in November two thousand twenty three. Really? Yeah. That's on that's on your YouTube channel or your Substack yeah. channel on YouTube. YouTube. Yeah, I, I get I get community guideline warnings a fair amount but and i, I don't you think know, <laughs> as far as how to market it i you know i think the thing that scares me the most is that i think there is a very high number of young people in particular millennials who aren't that young anymore and gen z's who actually don't want free speech they actually don't want it. they've been conditioned they've grown up with safe spaces and speeches violence and all of this nonsense and they think free speech is dangerous. I don't think they would articulate it that way. And they want it for some. They want it for themselves as they march screaming from the river to the sea. But they don't want it for <laughs> others. Um, and so it's a difficult uphill climb. But I think for those of us who do believe in it, which I still think is more than half of us, we need to exercise it every single day. That's the best way to market it is to exercise it every single day. Do not be, do not be careful. Say the thing you need to say. And I will defend your right to do it, even if I disagree with you. So you're but you're settled in Denver now. Are you have you started up a new uh, gig, or are you spending all your time focusing on on film production? Uh, well, I've been consulting with companies, but I am starting up a, a new thing of my own, which is the first time I've said that. But I'm not going to tell you anymore. If I am starting my own brand, 
I want some breaking news. <laughs> More to come on that soon. Yeah. More to come. To come. Okay, come we'll have you back close. on when you're ready to you're yeah. ready to announce it because uh, you know you've got too much talent to uh, to not not do anything with it. Although maybe if you can get education turned around, that would be you know just a small achievement. Get that done this year and then go on to the yeah, next. <laughs> I'll work on that. <laughs> I'll I'll give that a go. Yeah. So uh, when does when do you wrap? And you, I guess you're already in editing. When do you expect to start uh, distributing or looking for a distributor? I'm going to start looking now. So for anyone listening, you know, I'm coming. I'm coming for you. I'm going to start looking. I have not yet. I was waiting for this uh, teaser to be done. And we're editing. And we hope we, you know, we think late spring is when, um, when it'll be released. Are you familiar with Brownstone Institute, Jeffrey Tucker? Seems like very they, familiar. I have a piece coming out today. In fact, oh, good. So uh, I, I feel like I've I've given short shrift to your gymnastics career. I I don't really. It it, it, it it's been so extraordinary. You were six. You were six time, uh, on, or eight times on the U.S. national team, and you won the the championship. Uh, uh, when in what was it two thousand eight? Two thousand eight. No, nineteen eighty six. I'm old. Come on. 1986. <laughs> I was looking at all those kids. In the when the book came out. Yeah, the book, uh, my book, Chalked Up, came out in 2008, and it was the first first-person account of how abusive. Well, now you said you were the worst national champion <laughs> ever in 50 years. I cannot believe that. I've been accused of such. I, I don't take offense, though. It, that's not a point of pride for me. My my gymnastics skill at this at, at 54 i really don't care what people think of me at, you know as a gymnast at 16 would you recommend your kids getting into gymnastics you know my daughter who's 7 uh does do it recreationally i, I it's a, such a fun sport i think you just have to pay attention uh to how your kids are feeling and you know i tell parents watch you know understand the coach's philosophy about sport uh that you know ideally it's about the development of the whole child um and not about just winning medals i think in fact you know honestly today i often feel like things veer too far in the other direction with everyone gets a medal and um and all of that nonsense i i don't think everyone should get a medal there are winners and losers and it's good for a kid that's part of the reason kids do sports is to learn how to lose and pick themselves up and keep trying. So, yeah, I would. I, I don't want my kids to be too, too serious at anything. There's a very short window of time when you get to be a child. And training 10 hours a day kind of interferes with that, as you might imagine. Well, thank you. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm honored. I've, as, I read, as I said, as I read about you, I'm sort of in awe of your, your achievement. Uh, Let's wrap a little bit. Name of the film and where can we find it? And and more importantly, where can we find the website? I assume you've got a FundMe website. How do we how do we how do we find all that? I do. I got everything. I write on Substack, uh, which is just my name, Jennifer Say S E Y. Um, I'm very active on Twitter. Um, the film, the the trailer is on YouTube. Our our channel is called Generation COVID Film. And we've got to give, send, go. Anyone who wants to contribute, every little bit helps. Um, again, if you go to give, send, go and just uh, search for Generation COVID film, um, we'd love it. $5, $6, $100, whatever you can do. Or you can do more, more, more. Well, you know. Yeah. All right. 
Well, look, this this has been great. And, and offline, I'm gonna I'm going to put you together with Michael Pack, and uh, maybe we can maybe we can help uh, help awesome. accelerate the launch. So Jennifer, say thank that. you. Appreciate the time and appreciate telling me about the, um, your film and uh, what's been happening in the schools. And uh, hope you enjoyed this segment. And uh, this this has been a big issue: the closing of the schools and how we claw back from that is one of the things we're going to be reckoning with for years. And uh, so stay tuned. We'll be covering this going forward. And we're also going to be covering Jennifer Say's new adventure when she's ready to uh, when she's ready to launch. So, Jennifer, thanks so much for joining. Thank you for having me, Bill. It was really uh, great to talk to you. Okay, great. Thanks. That was great. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you. You did your homework. How did you like the movie? I love the movie. Athlete.